Good morning, Transit Church. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, if you're here for the first time, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, why don't you grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 2. If you're new to your Bible, there are some down the center column of, uh, of seats. You can grab one of those. And Exodus will be in the very front of your Bible. You don't have to turn too far to find it. And the Bible's there, the pew Bible, so to speak. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 today, but we're going to read together chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 as a, as a focal, focal point for our, for our time together. And when you read it, one of our traditions here is that we read the verses out loud together. You'll also find them on the screen. So let's read together. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought to him Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to, uh, to, to give you thanks, firstly, for the gathering of your church. We thank you for the that we can be here. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And uh, God, would you incline our hearts toward you this morning? We're reminded that even to want to worship, you have to draw us to yourself. And uh, and thank you that you do that through your gospel by the person and work of Jesus this morning. It's him that we're we're here for. And uh, and Lord, we want to hear from him by the Spirit and through your word. Uh, Lord, we also pause to say a prayer for those who are in harm's way of of uh, what's now a, a, a storm, uh, Florence, and, and Lord, though, though the hurricane uh, has diminished in its size and uh, in the capacity of the winds and all that, still there's, there's much, that, much damage that is being done and that will be done, uh, mostly due to, to flooding and power outages. I, this morning I already got a report from a pastor friend of mine who's in Fayetteville saying that over the next two days all of downtown is going to be evacuated because of the, the water coming from the Cape Fear River all the way downtown. And so, Lord, we are mindful of our family and our friends and those that we know, and even those that we don't, uh, that are somehow connected to us uh, through you and through your church. And we pray, God, that you have mercy. God, we pray that water would subside, uh, that you would cause the tide. You, I mean, you're the God of the storms. You command the wind and the waves to cease, and they do. And I pray for the safety, the, the common sense of your people, and that the church, as Joseph prayed earlier, that the church would come alongside to help, to, to show this God that serves and, and, uh, and, and comes along people to help when uh, that help is needed. And so we pray for them. We pray for 
uh, their safety. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you're with us for the first time, we just started a new series last week uh, surveying the book of Exodus, and we're calling it Redemption. Uh, Redemption because that really is what the story of Exodus is about. It's about God coming and saving through uh, various means, mostly through grand miracles, saving Israel, that, that, that nation that he's calling to himself, out of the bondage of slavery. And we're liking it to the way that God comes and he saves us. He saves us from the bondages that we expose ourselves to and that we are submitted to throughout our lives. And our focus today is going to be chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, although I will survey a little bit of chapter 1. Um, and as I said last week, one of the, I mean, you can't read Exodus without a little bit of the backstory. And so even to get into chapter two, we need a little backstory. And so I'm going to give you some backstory uh, by way of uh, asking this question. How much do you know about your family's heritage? Where you come from? How, you're, how those people that you call your people got to wherever they are living, doing whatever they're doing. Do you know what your family over time has valued? The values that they have lived by? Um, so, I mean, ask, asking that question of my own self, I called my mom and my dad this week. I actually got on the phone, called my dad first, uh, because I know a lot, I know more about my mom's side of the family than I do about my dad's. And so I called my dad, and uh, he was taken aback by the question, first of all. He's like, what do you want to know? <laughs> And, uh, and so he starts just unpacking uh, a little bit about his family. And so, uh, long story short, here's what I found out about both, you know, my mom's extended family, my dad's extended family. You, you want to know what it was? Not too much. <laughs> like, seriously. My mom, because she's done some research, I mean, uh, my mom's family, side of the family, the Suit and Farrington family, uh, they've had a history of family reunions for years and years, and so because they've done that, they're, they're more connected to um, several generations of, of people on that side, and I am familiar with that story because I grew up pretty much every weekend and every summer going to my grandmother's house, you know, Chapel Hill in the country, dirt roads, you know, they had a garden, they had animals that they killed to eat, and they grew their own food and, like, water through a well. I mean, it was just like this southern... Um, slow kind of a living that I grew up in. And of course, there's cousins and aunts and uncles that I know a lot about. But then I come to my dad's family. And my dad grew up in Durham. Uh, his mother comes from Mississippi. His dad comes from Durham. I don't know how they met, and he couldn't tell me either. Um, and my dad has done a little bit of research in, uh, in, the, in this, our name, Tumor. And he found out that, that the Tumor name is Dutch. But what that means as a black man standing before you is that African slaves came over during the transatlantic slave trade, and they, they had Dutch slave masters that gave us their name. It really doesn't tell me anything about uh, my her heritage. And so, I mean, that's basically it. Isn't that kind of like sad? Like, I have no idea where my peoples are, where my people come from. Um, more than that, I really don't know a lot about what my family has valued over the years, what we've stood for, those things that make us who we are. I can't go back more than my parents can go back. And my mom can go back maybe three generations. My dad can go back maybe two-ish at, at best. And one of the reasons why I can't go back and uh, understand any of that is because I'm too far removed from it. I personally can't remember it. And as I'm articulating it to you, my parents really can't articulate it 
uh, that well either. And in context of that, when we're talking about Exodus, the nation of Israel is actually asked to trace back their heritage some number of years, like not just decades, centuries. They are being um, encouraged to do that even as they're listening orally probably to the story of Moses talking about the generations that came before them. And oh, by the way, we're invited to peer into this because in Christ, guess what? Their history is our history. Their heritage is our heritage. And so at the end of the book of Genesis, we have Jacob and his family who are 70 persons deep in Genesis 46, and they're moving to Exodus, moving to Egypt. Why? Because there's a famine in the land. There's a famine throughout all of Egypt, and it spills over into the, the, the outlying lands to include Canaan where Jacob's family was. And so in Genesis 49, Jacob is on his dying bed, and he calls his sons and his daughter to him, and he basically uh, blesses them, and he gives them one last charge. And this is, this is what the charge is. He says, all right, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. When I die, take me back to my homeland, that land being Canaan, the land that God had given him. And so sometime after that, Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, who at that time is the second person in charge of all of Egypt, also dies. And so at the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, but also in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, we learn that Joseph had died. But it's not just Joseph. What it's insinuating is Joseph, all of his brothers, and everyone in that generation had passed on. And so by the time we get to Exodus 2, 400 plus years have passed. And what's important for us in terms of learning what's going on is that we've got 400 years of not just the Israelites existing in Egypt, but it's the culture that they're being immersed in. Think of you being immersed in an American culture for as long as you've lived. What are you going to end up being? In many ways, you're going to end up being kind of American, right? Even if your culture comes from something else that, that, that plays influence in your life. And so the Israelites have been a people who for 400 years have been surrounded by the paganism and the polytheism of Egypt. They've got no Bible because it hasn't been written yet. There are no scrolls to turn to. There's no holy text. They have nothing to read as they sit down, even as parents with their doing devotions with their kids. Uh, everything they know about who they are and where they come from, their heritage, has been passed down orally. And, and if grandma and grandpa, as they're sitting down talking to their kids about what their great-grandma and grandpa told them isn't right and true, they're not going to have any kind of connection to their heritage. And so all they had was the oral tradition that God said what he said, that God created the world in six days, and then he rested. And I'm sure the kids are sitting down saying, well, what does rested mean? Well, they call it the Sabbath, and the Sabbath sort of means like we stop and we don't just rest, but we get to worship God. Yeah, and, and that's how they learned. And then there was the flood, and the kids were saying, what's the flood? Well, um, God didn't like what he saw, and he sent water on the earth, and it covered the whole earth, kind of like the Hurricane Florence is like covering all of North Carolina right now, except it's a million times over. I mean, he really covered the whole earth, and the water stayed there for a long time. But, oh, here's some good news. Noah built an ark. Well, what's an ark? Well, uh, it's kind of like a big, giant boat that God rescued them out of. I mean, that's how they learned. And then, of course, came Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It was an oral tradition. And at the same time, you have 
of course, the Israelites learning about their heritage through oral tradition, but they're surrounded by this influx of paganism in Egypt. And if you check the history books, the Egyptians worshipped any and everything that existed. And so if you go down to the river to get water or to bathe, you see the Egyptians worshiping the river. You wake up in the morning, you see the sun rising, and you, you I mean, the, the Egyptians are, rise, uh, are, are worshiping the sun as it rises. If you are uh, a mother having a baby, then they worship the goddess of birth whose head was a frog. Oh, by the way, it's crazy, right? And so the Egyptians worship everything, all the elements. They even worship the, the earth itself. They, of course, worshiped the god of gods himself, Pharaoh. So for 400 years, this is the norm for, for the Israelites. Interestingly, in Exodus 1, we see two different pictures involving the Israelites. First, we see uh, all this stuff, the, 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 the kind of culture they're immersed in, that's in the history of where they were. But then I think we see glimpses of light. Now, these seeds that God had sown that were planted, that despite 400 years of paganism and polytheism and, of course, um, them being subjected to slavery at some point, we see somehow God's path for Israel had taken root, and he is letting them know who they are. And really what we see mostly is God's sovereign hand protecting them through everything that they experienced. Uh, And here's some examples. Verse 7, it says, where's verse 7? But the people of Israel, but the people of Israel were fruitful, increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled uh, with them. And so, a generation of the generation of Joseph had gone. Um, the nation of Israel is flourishing under God's blessing. And what we should see there is they really are doing what God said way back in Genesis two. There's there's this flourishing of the creation mandate. It is causing them to be alive and well as a nation. Skip down to verse seventeen. You're going to look at the Bible. I don't think I have these slides. Uh, we're on the slide. Verse 17 and 18, the Hebrew midwives were given a command to kill the firstborn uh, of the male sons of Egypt, right? And yet, what did the Hebrew midwives do? They feared God, the God of the patriarchs, the God they had heard about from their grandparents and their great-grandparents. And they feared God instead of doing the evil thing that Pharaoh had told them to do. And not only that, skip a few verses down, verses 20 and 21, we see that God blessed these midwives. He blessed them for their decision to fear him instead of doing what Pharaoh said, so much so that they and their families became fruitful and mighty, all because they feared God. But at the same time, we also see just a lot of oppression. And we see oppression in chapter 8, verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Another Pharaoh comes along, Joseph dies, um, and that Pharaoh comes to power. And the text tells us that Pharaoh did not know Joseph. What it's saying there is not that Um, he had not heard the stories of how Joseph, as a a, a second-in-charge ruler over over Egypt, had come and saved today by his wisdom and by his decisions. He's saying that he refused to honor Joseph's name and all he had done for Egypt some hundred years ago. And so he sees Israel and all their numbers and all their strength, and what does he do? He panics. He panics primarily because a hundred years before that, Egypt had been invaded by a country out of the north, and they had been uh, oppressed for that time. And so he's thinking, man, these people are growing. They're being fruitful. And at, at some point, we're not even going to be able to stop them from outnumbering us. And oh, by the way, if they outnumber us, how easy would it be for them to overthrow us? He thinks they're in trouble. So his plan is to what? Oppress them. Skip down to verse 11 through 14. 
Pharaoh subjects the Israelites to slave labor, and the intent of the labor really is to just control the population growth. He thinks they're going to defeat him somehow uh, as they come more numerous as a nation. So he ramps up yet again the pain in their lives. He calls them to make bricks, uh, and at some point he says, all right, I'm not even going to give you the straw to make the bricks. He makes their labor hard, and when that doesn't work, he resorts to one of the worst things that you could see on, you know, in our lives. He resorts to genocide. Verse 15 and 16, Pharaoh implements a genocide by the practice of infanticide. He takes the newly born male child of every Hebrew family, and he uh, subjects them to murder at the hand, supposedly of the hand of the Hebrew midwives. They're supposed to take these babies and toss them into the Nile so that they, in turn, would drown and there would be no more. And that brings us to chapter 2. And so here's the, here's the framework. Amidst the backdrop of genocide, of infanticide, of slavery, of oppression of various types, and of course of the culture, this culture of paganism and uh, polytheism, the, the cat- catastrophe really of the last 400 years, we read in verse 1, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. This is an obscure verse. Uh, Commentaries uh, don't know actually what to do with this verse. Uh, Levi is not the gene company that you might, uh, might wear. Levi is the son of Jacob. We see his name listed uh, up here in the, the, of the sons of Jacob. Uh, he's the third born son. He's the one that ends up being the priestly line. And so what uh, the writer of Exodus is doing is he is telling us that God is making sure that there's a continuity of the priestly line in Israel. Why? Because he's going to raise up a son, and that son is going to do something uh, in regards to uh, leading and protecting and saving his people. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, not a daughter, a son. And so here's the interesting thing. All right, we've just talked about what's going to happen to all Hebrew male sons that are born. And what's that? They're going to be put to death. They're going to be taken and dumped into the Nile so that they would drown. And so this, is a, this obviously is a tension in the text. It's a tension in the story. And so this woman gives birth to a male son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, that makes me smile, I mean, it makes me smile primarily because, I mean, there, are, there is no such thing as a fine baby, right? I mean, unless that baby is yours. Uh, if you are a, a reader of, of all the Bible, then you know that uh, Acts chapter 7, in fact, you probably don't even know this, Acts chapter 7 gives a really good review, a summary of uh, what goes on in the latter half of Genesis all the way to the beginning of Exodus. Stephen has just been... Uh, ordained as a deacon, and he's been uh, challenged by some religious leaders, and he comes to them, and he sort of lays out the history of God's redemption, starting with the patriarchs. And in verse 20, what he does is he gives a description of the birth narrative of Moses. And Stephen, echoing what we hear in Genesis 2, um, Exodus 2, he says that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And he's not saying that that kid was a sharp-looking kid, you know, only your kid is sharp looking. What he's saying is Moses was born and um, there's something unique about him. So unique that in the latter half of verse 2, it says his mom and his dad, they decide to hide him for three months. You know, we can overlook this, this hiding for three months. 
and what all that would entail. But I'll just tell you, what's going on here is a profound act of faith. And we know that because, all right, so we're, we're just reading the whole Bible. Hebrews 11.23 gives us some insight into this. It says, by faith, Moses, when he, when, he was, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. There's that word again. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. So I don't know if you've seen the movie, you've you read stories about uh, Moses' parents, the baby being born, and you know, them like, putting the baby in a basket and floating him down the river, like they're desperate. This actually is not a, it's not a scene where the parents are desperate. They're probably nervous, anxious, but they've got faith here. And so what you see really is um, their faith being worked out in a, in a great way. And... Um, I love what we're able to see here. By faith, they had thought that um, the child was beautiful. There was something special about him, and so they're not even afraid of the king's edict. They're just going to act uh, out in faith. Um, think about this fact. You ever notice how, as a parent, uh, even with y'all in here, that if your kid cries, uh, you're going to know that cry, like over and above other babies cries. You just kind of know what your kid wants. And not only that, sometimes the kid cries and you can know what's wrong with him or her. Like, ah, oh, he just needs a baby, uh, a diaper change. Ah, uh, uh, he just needs to be burped. Ah, uh, he's just fussy right now. He's, he's trying to go to sleep and he won't go to sleep. So I'll just hold him a little bit. Um, we, can determine, we can discern those things about our kids over and above other people's kids. If somebody else's kid is crying, most of which are like, man, would that kid just shut up? Don't we? But if, if it's our kid, we immediately know what's going on with that kid. But what I think is unique about this here is uh, they've got a young kid they're trying to hide for three whole months. Think about this. Every knock on the door, every little cry the kid gives, every whimper. Aren't you going to be like nervous? Like, ugh, what's going to, if anybody hears that my baby, that I have a baby that's supposed to be put in the, thrown in the Nile and drowned, What's going to happen to me? Um, the mama probably is probably hiding him, dressing him up as a girl. I don't know what they would have done in those days. Uh, very likely, uh, she is pretending that her baby is a girl. And it's like you going out to a restaurant or wherever you go when you go out in the D.C. area. Where, uh, people are interested in babies, aren't they? Like, you want to look at it. You want to see, oh, look at that baby, even if the baby isn't cute, except it's your baby. All right? And so they, they had to have had a little bit of tension in regards to that, uh, of protecting this baby um, from, uh, from harm. And so it's hard to hide the baby over time, for surely if the mom gets found out, she's going to get killed, she's going to get punished, and so is the baby. And we come to uh, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him for, uh, took, him, uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and place it among the reeds by the riverbank. The word basket here is the same word in Genesis 6 when Noah builds an ark. So Noah literally built a basket. And like Noah, um, Moses' mother put bitumen and pitch on the outside of it that would make it more floatable. Interestingly, this word for basket is the same word for cast it, casket. So Moses' mother, in faith, put her baby in a floatable casket not to kill him, but so that he would survive that and eventually, hopefully, um, something would happen that would, uh, that would be more positive than him being drowned in the, in the Nile. 
I like this word that, that the text uses. It says, Moses was placed among the reeds. Some of your versions say set. You know, when we watch movies, a lot of times, uh, sort of depicting the scene where the mom is trying to cause the baby to survive, it just shows uh, Moses' sister uh, pushing the basket and sort of floating it and following to see what would happen. But here, actually, it's more intentional. Moses is actually set or placed among the reeds. It looks like they are executing a plan that they had thought about. And then in verse 4, actually Miriam, his sister, prayerfully follows this basket as it's being placed. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Moses has two other siblings. Obviously, his one sibling, his, his sister, her name is Miriam. And we will see a little bit more about her life uh, in future chapters. He has an older brother, Aaron, who will show up in chapter 4 and then in chapter 7. Aaron is three years older, so he really just misses the king's edict to, to be put to death by only a, a little bit. Uh, the interesting thing is, is what Miriam is doing. I mean, what, what is she doing? Why is she there in the scene? Why is she following so closely? And I think uh, what comes out in the text is she's there purposefully. Uh, she has this hope probably from her parents. She's watching as afar, uh, hoping at the plan they've come up with at their home for the, re- the whole reason why their mom would have uh, put the baby in a, in a basket, covered it so that it would float. Uh, she's hoping that whatever they're doing would save the boy. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. Some wonder if the spot where they are is an actual bathing site that a lot of people would come to. Scholars tell us that the Egyptians would actually uh, bathe in the, uh, the Nile as a ritual. We don't know Uh, because the text doesn't tell us if there's any specific information that Miriam has that would have led her to this one spot. We don't know if she knows any information about the whereabouts or the happenings of of, uh, of Pharaoh's daughter that made her to come right there. Obviously, I think God is in this. What we do know is that they probably know something about God. They have a faith in God, Hebrews 11 would tell us, but probably even more than that. I can't help but think of Proverbs 21.1. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Perhaps, um, you know, Pharaoh's daughter is not the king. They're thinking, you know what, the king's heart is like this. Maybe the daughter's heart can be steered in the same way. And then we get to verse 6. When she opened it, so this is uh, Pharaoh's daughter opening this basket. She saw the child, and behold, a baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she opens that basket, sees this kid. Um, those of you with, with kids, um, again, think of how you can discern your child's cry over other people's cry, and just how you feel in general about a baby that's crying. Um, But here's the thing I think is interesting about this. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the text says, takes pity on the, the, the baby. There's something in her that's drawn to this child, and though she is the daughter of Pharaoh, the man who has pronounced this edict to kill little babies, there's something in her inclining her towards this child. I remember uh, when our first son, Jonathan, was born, and uh, we were trying to go through the, you know, the, uh, you're trying to get the baby to sleep, right? Because, I mean, we were in baby ranger school. We were getting no sleep. And it was, it was like four, five, I mean, he might have been six months old. And uh, we were trying to do the, all right, Jonathan, 
eat stairway sleep rhythm so that we would get sleep and he would be happy. And so I remember the first night we tried, we tried to like let him cry through it. And so we put him down, diaper changed. I think we were still wrapping him up so he would be like nice and tight. And then uh, Larissa had just fed him. And then sure enough, like clockwork, that dude is waking up like 9, 12, 2, 4. Like, come on, Jonathan, get some sleep so I can sleep too. And it was just in us because it's in parents, isn't it, to get up and go soothe that child. And so uh, at that point, uh, I was still going to get him and I'd bring him to Larissa. And, I was, and Larissa was like, you going to get up? I was like, no, let's let him cry through it. And, and we were living in military quarters at the time, and we were like, oh, man, our neighbors are going like, to be ticked off at us as our baby cried the whole night. But we let him cry through it, and eventually he, you know, he got it. But you know, the, the example is, I mean, there's something in us that wants to get up and soothe a baby. Our hearts are moved. We want to soothe. They cry. And I think that's what's happening in verse 6. And it's not happening with, with Jochebed, Moses' um, mom. It's happening with Pharaoh's daughter. We don't know why it's happening, but it's happening. The baby is crying, and Pharaoh's daughter, the the text says, takes pity on him. The word pity means to be moved with compassion. It means to to spare or to save. And so she's moved. It's not, you know, shut that kid up because it's not my kid, and it's just annoying me. Um, I mean, somehow, despite the, the edict that's gone on to kill uh, the newborn babies, and to you know, put them in and out and drown them, she is moved at the heart level. And so something is different about her, and something is different about this situation. Verse 6 says, this is one of the Hebrew children, That is what she says. Um, some scholars say this is one of the bravest actions uh, that happens in all of the Bible. What happens next? Like a stalking older sister Miriam Uh, sees the moment, and she acts. She steps in, and here's what she says in verse 7. My sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? A commentator says, almost like a good salesperson, she's there with these perfect words at the perfect time. She She doesn't ask not too soon. She doesn't ask not too late. She doesn't have too many words, and she doesn't have too few. She just leaves it out there. Shall I go and find someone to nurse this child for you? And with that, we see Uh, an interesting response in verse 8. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. All right, stop. Put yourself in the scene. You got a baby that may or may not survive. You got a sister that's trying to help the situation along. She introduces herself very bravely to Pharaoh's daughter. um, And she asked the right question at the right time, is able to go and bring the mother back, and the mom's on the scene. And so on one side, you have the daughter of Pharaoh who can very easily um, take this baby, doesn't have to console it, doesn't have to like it, and she can just dump him in the water, and there's nothing that anybody can do about it, and the baby's drowning. And then you have baby mama. Baby mama's coming up on the scene, and I mean, she's probably white-faced, anxious, freaking out on the inside as to what's going to happen to my baby and you have the unthinkable happen. And what's the unthinkable? Uh, Verse 9, And Pharaoh's daughter says to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. Uh, My Aunt Aileen is is like the the most expressive Christian woman that you will ever meet. And my Aunt Aileen would call this like an ain't God great moment. I mean, she was like, ain't God good? 
Because, I mean, do you see what's happening here? It's, it's the unthinkable is happening. Uh, God is, you know, obviously behind this and orchestrating it such that he allows this woman who could very easily kill this baby, not only to take a liking to the child, but to allow the, the, the sister to go and find a nursing mom. The nursing mom comes and she's not only just going to give the child so that the mom can nurse her own baby, but, oh, by the way, she's going to give her wages to, 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 to raise her own child. I mean, that's, that's just like God, right? So this woman gets, to, gets paid to raise her own child. And we conclude in verse 10. If I can find verse 10, my glasses. When the, when the child grew older, she brought, to, uh, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. The, the Hebrew pronunciation is, is Moshe. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so it takes until verse 10. We don't know how much time has expired for Moshe, Hebrew Moses, uh, the, the redeemed one drawn out of the water to be named Moses. And returning to one of my earlier points, what's interesting in the text is that while Moses was raised in an Egyptian household and all the negative connotations that comes along with that, there obviously are these seeds of the grace of God showing through. And one of them is right here in verse 10. Uh, unwittingly, Pharaoh's daughter gives Moses kind of a Hebrew pronunciation of his name, at least a name uh, that, uh, that speaks of his destiny. Moses is going to become the redeemer that saves Israel really through, you know, through the water and, and beyond that. And she names him uh, something similar to that, the redeemed one who draws, uh, who draw, who's drawn out of the water. Let me, I'm going to give you uh, three takeaways, and then we'll be done. The first uh, takeaway is, is this, and I think it's, it's not the most significant one, but it's, it's one I think that plays through the, uh, at least the first two chapters of our text. Uh, it's that God plays the long game. There really are two stories being told here. Uh, in chapters 1 and 2. And the, 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 there's the obvious work of God to rescue Moses, what will be um, the destiny of his life to become Israel's redeemer. But the other story is the dire situation for this nation of Israel. I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place, and they haven't even gone uh, yet to the Red Sea. The male babies of the, the Hebrew nation really are being put to death. And it only is going to get worse before it gets better. And so if you're Jewish, you had to wonder, really, I mean, God, where, where are you? I mean, what the heck? I mean, they wouldn't have said what the heck, whatever the Hebrew vernacular would have been for when you're stuck and you just need some rescue and rescue doesn't seem to be in sight. I think they would have been feeling that. The king had just made an edict. Every Jewish boy born would likely have been tossed like a stone into the river. And they're like, time out, God. We've heard the oral tradition about you. We've bought into the story that you're a God, the creator God, that you're the God of the patriarchs, and we've received you as our God, and we're crying out to you, and can you not be mighty to save at this time? I mean, where are you in the midst of this chaos that's happening in our life? If you fast forward to the, the, the story of the nation of Israel, this isn't the last time they're going to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. In fact, they will, they will live this over and over again in their lives as they go in and out of being obedient to the covenant God has them in. In particular, a few, several centuries, 500 to almost 1,000 years later, uh, future generations of Israel are yet again in captivity 
and they'll ask the same question. One in particular, uh, Habakkuk brings this out, Habakkuk 1 and 2. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or, or cry to you violence, and you'll not save? And I ask, you know, I bring this up because have, have you ever felt like that? Has, has life ever squeezed you that much that you know a little bit about your heritage? You've bought into who God is and the role he has in your life. You've surrendered yourself to him. You perhaps even know a little bit about uh, God's ability and his willingness to come alongside you to save you. And you need saving. And God is nowhere around. And so that's how Israel felt in this moment. That's how they're going to feel several times in the future. I, I love how Habakkuk sort of not necessarily resolves it, but gives them perspective. He has a fascinating response. Verse 5, he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that would not that you would not believe, even if I told you. And so here's what I think Habakkuk is helping us to understand, perspective, if you will, in the moment of difficulty, God has not forgotten Israel, and God has not forgotten us as well. He's not mis- mis- misplaced this nation that he raised up. He's aware of their plight. Uh, if you are a social media stalker, then you know uh, I got the chance to go back to West Point this weekend. Uh, it was my 30th reunion from West Point, like graduation. So most of y'all are not even barely 30 years old. So I was already out of college serving in the army by the time you were born. I was for free. All right, so it was a cool weekend, um, and uh, it's, just, you know, it's cool because you get to go back to West Point, and West Point's a very positive place, and of course the cadets, and uh, you know, it's an army post. I mean, just it's, if you've never been to West Point, there's history there uh, and, and all that, but of course the, uh, the fun for me was getting to hang out with all these people that I spent four years with, and uh, we became army officers together. Uh, the highlight of my weekend was on Friday. I got to uh, stand in the cadet chapel, which is this grand, uh, one of the most grand um, military chapels in all of the world, not just the army. Uh, and I got to preach the memorial for our, our fallen classmates. 24 of our classmates have died at this point. Uh, and I preached from Psalm 121. And I'm reminded of Psalm 121 as I think about Israel and their plight. Here's what Psalm 121 says. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I could go on, but this is just a psalm of God coming alongside us when life is squeezing us. This picture of hills here is a picture of trouble. And so think of the, the trouble that comes upon us. Sometimes uh, it just happens upon us. We're not ready for it. And then sometimes we can just see it brewing up. And this is a psalm of ascent. And the, uh, the Jews would sing this as they're making the, the trek over the mountains and through the hills to get to Jerusalem. And the the, the the, the fear for them were robbers and just the dangers of, of being in the mountains and being in the hills. And then the psalmist reminds himself, as we're reminding the, the, the Jewish, Jewish pilgrims, is God is my help. God is my help when life gets tough. God is my help when life gets hard, to the point, the, to the point of he doesn't slumber, nor does he sleep. God is this, this perpetual insomniac. I mean, he's pulling all-nighters. He's pulling his guard shift. He's pulling your guard shift, guarding over you in the situations and circumstances of our lives. And I just love the fact that what the psalmist is doing is giving us perspective that when life gets hard, God is not far away. In fact, he is near. And I think what the Israelites might be missing here in this moment is they're missing a bit of perspective in the midst of tragedy. 
perspective of what God is actually doing. Another psalm, Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. I think that means God plays a long game. Like God has this, this like end-to-end, A-to-Z and beyond perspective. And don't we just live in the immediacy of our culture, of the, of the now? Sometimes we just dismiss this, this idea of, you know, there's, there's a long time. It's a long span of, of our lives, and, and God is seeing things in a long perspective. I want answers now. I want info now. When I hit difficulty, I want the Google search to response right now. I, like, I, I don't even want the, the Apple wheel to, to, to spin around. Just give it to me right now. Don't we live life like that? I don't want to wait for tomorrow, let alone 400 years. God, I'm expecting you to move when I tell you that I'm in, I'm in trouble. Like, can you move right now? And we live our lives like that. I'm expecting you to help me uh, to understand the problems that I have when I ask you. And of course, if we live like that with this immediacy kind of a mentality, who's the God in that scenario? It's not the God of the Bible. It's you. It's you that's trying to be in control. And so here's the thing to remember that our text brings out. God plays the long game. And here's the truth. I've learned this about the Lord over my few short years as a Christian. God is slow. He is. You got to admit it. God is slow. But he's not slow in the terms of how we define slowness. He is patient. That's the slowness of God. He's patient. And for 400 years, he's letting this long game play out, and we should expect nothing different in our lives. We aren't going to live for 400 years, but whatever the circumstance or situation that you might be in, God is slow, but more importantly, he's patient, and he's playing the long game in your life as well. Here's the second thing. The hero of the story is God. I actually got two, two uh Two ideas for the second point. The hero of the story is God, and we, all, we should also see God is at work. And that's probably the, I mean, that's, it's, he's work at work, but he's at work not in the forefront. He's at work behind the scenes. One of the more interesting points about our text are the three obscure women that are, that are brought to the surface here. You have Jochebed, Moses' mom. She's actually not named until later chapters. You have Miriam, uh, his sister. You have Pharaoh's daughter, all three obscure women who are playing a significant role in the birth, the bringing out of this man who would redeem Israel out of slavery. And you can't help but think of women in the Bible who are significant in the, the, the plan of redemption to bring out our true redeemer, Jesus. I mean, who do you think about? Ruth, the Moabitess. You think about Rahab, the, 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 the prostitute. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Those aren't significant um, people, although we don't know a whole bunch about them in the Bible. And I don't think the, the point is to, um, is to glorify these women. They really are the backdrop through which God is shining through because he is the real hero of this story. God is behind the scenes like a sovereign is supposed to be, and he's controlling and positioning, and he's also moving hearts. He's steering all that needs to be steered right where he wants it. Uh, I'm reminded of another psalm. This psalm has nothing to do with Exodus, but it's just how God works in our lives. Psalm 139 says, Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You sit, you know, when I, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to, go to Sheol, you're there. Um, verse 13, 
For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. All that I am, you kind of know me very well. And I bring up this psalm not because it fits with the Exodus story, other than the fact that it's, it's God's inspired word. Uh, I think it's appropriate because God is present in the unseen things. He's, he's present in the unseen things about your life. He's at work in uh, parts of your life that you have no idea that he's at work in. And in the same way, he really is the hero of this story. God is at work in the midst of the 400 years of of all that Israel experienced. He's, he's at work in their brutality. He's at work um, amidst the heinousness of genocide and infanticide that's going on in, in their lives. He's the one that formed Moses in the womb and gave him to Jochebed and then sort of orchestrated uh, this baby who was supposed to not live because he was under the edict uh, to, to be you know, put in a basket and then placed at a certain point in the river and found by Pharaoh's daughter of all people. He's the one that's at work in Miriam's heart to get her to perform the actions that she actually performs. He is the one who uh, worked in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. It is God at work that will raise Moses, as we'll learn next week, from humility to royalty. I mean, that's who God is. That's what he does. And he's working behind the scenes, raising people up. And not only that, God is the hero of your story as well. You may not be able to see him working where you need him to work, but make no doubt about it, when we face the difficulties of our own lives, loneliness, addiction, uh, the sufferings that we, uh, that we have in, in just regular days, day to day, conflicts with relationships, grief of various sorts, he's the one that we, we need to know that we can depend on him. And he is there to help when we cry out to him. You may not, he may not come running to you the second that you cry out, but you have to have hope that he's going to be there when you need him. He is the God who is at work both in our homes with us and, and, and he goes with us on our jobs. God gives us this picture of himself at work. One commentator said this, and I thought it stuck out to me. If God did not save Moses the way the Bible says he did, it's doubtful whether he could even save anyone. So why do we have this picture of this redeemer through Moses? Because God wants us to know that he's the one that redeems. And here's the last, the last point. It's, it's the most important. Is We have the birth of a redeemer. And that redeemer, obviously, is Moses. I mentioned last week that the story of the Exodus has several layers and shadows. All right? And so what we're seeing here is a shadow of the more important birth of Redeemer, a Redeemer that wasn't placed in the reed, so to speak, but a Redeemer who, as Paul says, didn't see equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied or humbled himself, as some of your versions might say, to the point of death on the cross for you and for me. And of course, so Paul is likening the the true Redeemer to, to Jesus himself. And what does Jesus do? Like Moses will do for these Israelites in the ensuing chapters, Jesus comes and he saves us from the slavery of our own sin. Those things that have been done to us and those things that we selectively do because sin is just in us. And he does that by his death on the cross. The Bible calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. And if your life is in any kind of chaos, we, have, we can depend on such a solid and steadfast hope 
in the person and the work of Jesus. Why? Because he's the one that conquered sin, hell, death, and the grave. And so even in the midst of all of our days, even right now, God is here. Jesus has not forgotten about you, just like God had not forgotten about the Israelites. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this picture of redemption in our midst. Thank you for uh, the words that you've given us, these words foreshadowing the finished work of Christ. I, I think it's appropriate to say thank you for the, the bravery of Moses' family, that despite what was going on, that they would have the foresight, the hope, and the faith to see what you're doing in their midst, that you had given them this beautiful, fine child, and that your intentions for him was that he would be a solution for the plight of a nation of people. We thank you that you brought Moses out of the, the water, so to speak, uh, waters that, would, would, that were supposed to kill him, and that you would raise him up to be a deliverer also through water. We thank you that all this is a shadow of, of, of Christ as a redeemer for us. Thank you for Jesus. He's our Savior. And in the midst of a chaotic world, the chaos going on with the, the storm in North Carolina and South Carolina right now, Lord, we, we lean on him as one who brings peace in the midst of that chaos, who brings um, calm in the midst of a storm. And so, Lord, we pray that it's in him that we would look to to redeem us from our own plight, however so little or however so large. We look forward to that day that we would be in union with Christ and there would be no more storms in our lives, that there would be no more sin, heartache, or pain. I pray that you would give us perspective, almost like you gave the psalmist perspective, as they're putting uh, just the, the, the world they live in into the perspective of not themselves and what they're experiencing, but the perspective of, of how God sees us and how he sees his world. Help us and help us to see and to play the long game. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.